Welcome to Finish Well Radio, where changing the world starts with changing the home, with your host, Meredith Curtis. Hi, welcome to Finish Well Radio. I'm so excited that you're here. We are going to talk tonight about our British heritage. And you think, our British heritage, what is she talking about? Well, in our homeschool co-op this year, we're studying American history. So I just kicked off the year studying American history. And guess what I started with? A little quick review of some British history. In case you're wondering why, because you might be thinking, well, wait, I thought we overthrew <laughs> King George III and Great Britain and blah, 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 blah. But yes, we did overthrow King George III and we did become an independent nation, but we did carry with us a heritage that we got from Great Britain or now is called the United Kingdom. And so I want to talk about that because it's very, very significant and I think it will help you understand American history, specifically the American Revolution. I think you'll have new insight when we're finished with this talk tonight. So I'm really excited to have you here with us. We are going to travel back in time. Here we go. We're way, way back in time before the Battle of Hastings, which I'll get to in a minute. But we're way back in time after the Romans have left and the Isle of Great Britain is populated by the Angles and the Saxons. And that's kind of where England begins, the England that we know of today. And these Angles and Saxons are Germanic tribes and they have a certain way of living life and a certain way of making decisions. And that Anglo-Saxon method of government actually influences us all the way today. So kind of interesting, over a thousand years ago, there's this group of people and how they lived and how they ran their tribes, how they ran their island affects us today. So I think that's pretty cool. So let's go back in time and we're visiting these Angles and the Saxons and they really valued family. Family was the center really of their life and families formed together tribes. And what happened is that when the families wanted to make a decision, the leaders of the families all met together and they voted on things. They discussed things. They came to mutual understandings. And the leaders, of course, also included the Christian pastors, the religious leaders, because by now they had been converted to Christianity. And so they were very much into everybody having a say in the decisions that were made, not necessarily like every single person in the tribe, but definitely the leaders of the families. And their council that made decisions was called the Witten. The people made decisions at the level it was needed. So they had a lot of localized decision-making. So putting it in terms we can understand, I live in a city called Lake Mary. So if something's going on in Lake Mary, like there's a problem with the garbage in Lake Mary, Washington, D.C. doesn't need to get involved because it's a local decision. So the, the people who live in Lake Mary will take care of that problem. And that's called localized government. And so basically that government decisions are made at the level where the people are impacted. And that was 
something that we get all the way back from those Anglo-Saxons, which is, is kind of cool. And so life would go along swimmingly, and then there would be some kind of war. And when there was a war was the only time there was one head leader. And that head leader would be voted on, and he would be at the helm until the war was over. And then it would go back to this group leadership, decision-making. So that is sort of the foundation of our British heritage, these Anglo-Saxons. And life was going along well, and they eventually became united under King Alfred the Great. His descendants ruled England for a while until there was Edward the Confessor, and he did not have an heir. He died without an heir, and he was a very devout man, very devoted to the Lord. He was a very religious Catholic. He built the beautiful Westminster Abbey. So when he died, there were several people who felt that the throne should go to them. There was the British claimant to the throne, and there was a Danish claimant to the throne, and then there was, of course, William of Normandy. And William of Normandy invaded England, and he won the Battle of Hastings in 1066. And that's a really significant event. In fact, that is a date I have my kids memorize. I only have my kids memorize as they're going up about 15 days. And the Battle of Hastings is one of the days I have them memorizing. You're probably thinking, the Battle of Hastings? I've never heard of it. Well, what happened with the Battle of Hastings is that Normandy was a nation. It was very French. And so there was France and there was Normandy. Eventually, Normandy became absorbed into France. But it was very French in their culture and their way of living and their language and everything. And so when William of Normandy won the Battle of Hastings, he brought the French over with him. And so the French began to take roles of office and lands that had belonged to these British earls and nobles. It was taken away from them and given to some of these French nobles that William of Normandy brought in, the language at the court changed. And now, instead of being English, it was now French. And so the English people did not like that. They did not appreciate losing their culture. And so they were very unhappy with this new French king and the new French culture that had taken over. And for for a couple of hundred years, you know, it was hard for the British because King Normandy was an absolute ruler, and he even, like, took away just public lands. By public lands, I don't mean that the government owned them. That's what we think of public as today. But by public, meaning they were just free. Anyone could use them that wanted it. And he decided, no, this will be my hunting ground. And so if you've ever read the book of Robin Hood, and Robin is arrested for hunting in the king's forest. Well, that's because it for centuries had been everybody's forest. Whoever wanted to go like get some dinner could go hunting in the forest. And now suddenly William of Normandy and some of his descendants began to take over these lands that the people felt belonged to them and they made them their own. And if you killed an animal in the forest, then you would be arrested. And so it's, it's just, you know, a real change in how government was done. And William of Normandy had mostly the people, the Normans he brought over um, from Normandy to be in his council. So the British were now, who had enjoyed so much decision-making, were now kind of pushed out. And that had 
an impact on them. They didn't just roll over and play dead. Like they were not too happy. And the freedoms that they had enjoyed before William of Normandy came over continue to live in their hearts. Now what's interesting is that William of Normandy also brought with him the whole Lord of the Manor serfs and things like that. So he gave land to his nobles and then the nobles allotted pieces of that land to the peasants and some of them farmed the land, some were free. So that kind of changed, just so much changed. But the biggest thing that I want to talk about is that England and France became enmeshed because the kings and queens would marry their children to one another. So the the French you know, there was always seemed to be a French princess and there was always a British princess over in France, over in Normandy, and these kingdoms sort of overlapped each other. And it was just a little bit overwhelming because, okay, is the heir to the throne, if, if there's no French heir, is it a British heir? And so this, this, there was a lot of enmeshing of France and England, and they were really very, very different. The French people and the English people didn't exactly enjoy being enmeshed. Well, as time went on, I told you, like, the British nobles, they were not happy, and eventually the court became more and more British, and finally a bunch of nobles had enough, and that was during the time of Robin Hood. And with Robin Hood, um, if you have read the book of Robin Hood, um, of course, Robin Hood was probably based on a real person. We don't know how much of the story of Robin Hood is legend, but we do know he did not like the way the king was running the country. And that, of course, would be Henry II. He actually, in the book of Robin Hood, he is portrayed as good, but his son, King John, is portrayed as bad. But in other versions, you know, King Henry heavily taxed the people. His son, John, heavily taxed the people. But he did do some good things. He did set up a court system, um, and I'm going to talk about that a little later. But King John came along. He was not the first son who ruled. The first son who ruled was Richard the Lionheart. And Richard the Lionheart was just so beloved by the people. But he wasn't there much. You know, he was off on the Crusades. Then he was kidnapped and held in this castle for years. And so during his reign, he spent very little time in England, which was a shame because he probably would have made a great ruler. He definitely was a God-fearing man. And so in his absence, his mother was on the throne. But then when he eventually died, his brother, King John, took the throne. And King John was greedy and he heavily taxed the people and he was very autocratic. And the nobles just had enough and they said, okay, we're done. And they actually forced King John to sign the Magna Carta. Now, the Magna Carta wasn't brand new ideas. It wasn't like they said, hey, here's a brand new idea. Let's get King John to sign this idea into law. No, it was old, what we call British common law, and I'm going to talk about that next. But it was just ideas that had carried over from years, centuries and centuries, from the Anglo-Saxon times. And these were their rights, and they were demanding that the king remembered that they were Englishmen and they had their rights. And these are some of the things that were in the Magna Carta, that they were entitled to a trial by jury, 
that they could not be taxed unless they were represented. And doesn't that sound familiar? No taxation without representation. See, that idea wasn't new. It wasn't like the American colonists just said, hey, you know, we just we don't want to be uh, taxed unless we're represented. But this was a very standard old British law ideal, and they very much valued these things. Trial by jury, no taxation without representation, habeas corpus, which means you can't just throw me in jail. There has to be a reason, and the judge has to sign off on that reason. Um, and also the idea of owning private property, that you could own private property and it was protected. And the king could not come and take away your private property. And so very, you know, very strong ideals, but they had been around a long time. And so King John wasn't very happy, but he did. He was forced, like I said, to sign the Magna Carta. So just letting you know that this British law, these ideals were passed down generation to generation. They actually are based on the word of God. And the British common law, what we call, when we say British common law, and there are actually law books called, you know, about it and things like that, that you might read um, in high school or maybe college or just maybe for fun as an adult. But they're based on the word of God. And the laws that we refer to as British common law, they protect private property. They protect marriage. They protect people from physical harm. Um, they demand that someone who's accused of a crime has the right to face their accusers. Um, you cannot murder. You cannot steal. You cannot break a contract. If you say you're going to do something, you need to do it. Now, Henry II established a court system in the 1100s and this was before King John so some of these things were starting to come back to England that William of Normandy had taken away so William of Normandy came in 1066 the court system was established by Henry II in the 1100s so it wasn't very long for the English people to say look we have our rights and you're not going to take them away and there's this idea I'm not going to really go into this a lot but there was a concept called lex rex or law is king that everyone was under the law the bishops were under the law the pope was under the law the kings were under the law the people were under the law that god's law was the highest and no one was above god's law and that the the laws they set in place to govern nations especially in england they wanted those laws to reflect God's law and that everyone was under them. So they did not view that the king was some high and mighty person who could tell them what to do. They did not believe that at all. So that is the concept of British common law. So now you kind of have a feel what's going on. Now we're moving, we're in the 1200s and we're moving into the 1300s. This is, you know, the Middle Ages, the time of knights and castles the crusades and all of these things that are going on in the middle ages and you know medieval feasts and just nobles and fancy clothes and big drafty castles and exciting things knights in shining armor all of that stuff and now we come into the 1300s and we have got France and England fighting now France and England fight a lot and you'll see that through history oh France and England are at war 
few decades later, oh, France and England are at war. Oh, a few decades later, France and England are, are at war. But remember I told you that from the time of the Battle of Hastings, William of Normandy invading England, France and England are a mesh. So now comes along this Hundred Years' War, and it is about, of course, who sits on the throne. Because I told you, like, you know, the, there's a British princess over in France, and there's a, a French prince over in England. So, of course, there's going to be descendants of these marriages that aren't necessarily going to be in the country. And now all of a sudden, they're supposed to sit on the throne. So the English were saying, look, this guy is supposed to sit on the French throne. And the French were saying, no, it's this French prince. He's supposed to sit on the throne. So they fought over this. I am not kidding. From 1337 to 1453. Interestingly, in 1453, Constantinople fell. So I don't know if that's why they decided, okay, we're done. But very interesting, the same dates. But anyway, they they fought for over 100 years. And it's called the 100 Years War. And if you want to investigate more about it, you can learn about Joan of Arc. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is that gunpowder was introduced on the battlefield in Europe for the first time in the Hundred Years' War. Now, they, of course, had it in China and stuff. Now, what's interesting about that is they start shooting guns now, and, of course, the smoke would just fill the battlefield, and you could hardly see what was going on. And that would go on with the use of gunpowder in battle, even in the in the Civil War. In America, when you see photographs or you hear stories, the, the gunpowder just filled the battlefield. And so here now, gunpowder's introduced, and <laughs> we were studying the Hundred Years' War once, and I decided I was going to show my kids smoke filled the battlefield and all that and what happened is well I won't go into the whole story because I actually did a show on it but what <laughs> a radio show on, on finishable radio but what happened is I ended up having a kitchen explosion yeah it was very scary and and exciting and it was a, this beautiful pink pink um explosion anyway anyway we saw what gunpowder looked like on the battlefield in our kitchen that's kind of a side thing on the hundred years war what is interesting is that at the end of the Hundred Years' War, France and England are now disentangled. And so they had been intertwined, and now they're disentangled. And now France is France, and England is England. It's not like they still didn't intermarry sometimes. But now they're definitely, definitely two separate nations. That interconnection is gone. So that's really what's significant about the war, because now you're going to have the French settling part of the new world and the British settling part of the new world and of course Spain and we're not going to talk about Spain tonight but we will another time so now the hundred years war is over and two years later they took a break for two years England did and then they started the war of the roses so <laughs> fought for over a hundred years with France but now we're going to take a little break but before the war of the roses I want to tell you about the fall of Constantinople because the fall of Constantinople, um, I don't know if you remember your history, but the Roman Empire, when Emperor Constantine um, was ruling the Roman Empire, and he is actually the first Roman Empire who accepted Christ and became a Christian, he split the Roman Empire. So he had the West Roman Empire and the East Roman Empire. The West Roman Empire eventually had its capital in Rome, and the Eastern Roman Empire had its capital in Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul in Turkey. Well, what happened in 1453 is the Turks 
invaded Constantinople and they took it over. And you have the Turks now ruling in Constantinople. You have the Turkish Empire and they actually ruled until after World War One. Very, very a long, long rule. So they come into Constantinople, they're Muslims, and they are not going to put up with the Christians, and they are destroying churches, they're killing people, they're destroying all the beautiful Christian artwork, and the Byzantine Empire is is just being ripped apart. So what happens is over in, in what is now Italy, but then was an individual nation, the city-state of Florence, there is a guy named Medici, and he spends lots of money to bring over to Florence all of these scholars and all of these writings, ancient Greek and ancient Roman writings. And so as they come over to Florence, there is a rebirth or renaissance with rediscovering the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. It wasn't like they were all lost, but they were definitely much more preserved over in Constantinople. So now they're all in Florence and now we have this rise in fascination with everything Greek and Greek art so you see these beautiful beautiful art masterpieces and statues coming alive again just like back in the ancient Greek times and so you see Michelangelo Leonardo da Vinci just amazing amazing art amazing amazing artists and this is all going on in Florence now unfortunately the Greek and Roman writings and religion and all their gods, they were very, very pagan, very, very humanistic. The Greeks worshipped man. They also worshipped all of these idol gods. And so now we're having this invasion into the church of all of this idolatry. We're having this invasion into the church of all of this pagan philosophy. So right now you're having a lot of change in the church that's being affected by the Renaissance because the Renaissance wasn't a rebirth of Christian values. It was a rebirth of pagan values. And they infiltrated not so much into the lower pastors and things like that, but into the higher realms where some of those higher offices were more political offices. And these people became very carnal. And so not like what you see today, where, you know, the Pope is a good man and the people surrounding him love the Lord. But you begin to see people rising up in power in the Roman Catholic Church that are not good people. They don't love Jesus. They're not born again. Very, very sad. And so you begin to see a lot of corruption in the Roman Catholic Church. And that is going to play a huge part in our British heritage. And we're going to talk about that right after this commercial break. History shouldn't be boring. Meredith and Laura have some exciting new ebooks to bring the fun and excitement back into history. Studying the Middle Ages? Get Let's Have Our Own Medieval Banquet and Cook Up Some Fun. Studying Ancient History? How about making some recipes from the Ancient History Cookbook? Or get some creative ideas from Let's Have Our Own Olympic Games or Let's Have Our Own Archaeological Dig. These books are available at Amazon.com. The ebooks are available at PowerlineProd.com. Powerline Productions exists to serve you. We want to equip you to be joyful and successful in your homeschooling adventure. Powerline Productions. Being world changers, raising world changers. 
You've been listening to Finish Well Radio on the Ultimate Radio Network. Now back to your host, Meredith Curtis. Well, welcome back. So we talked about the Renaissance and we talked about the fall of Constantinople and the part that that played in just this corruption beginning in the Catholic Church. I told you about the War of the Roses. The War of the Roses lasted until 1453. And in 1453, Constantinople fell. And then a couple of years later, the British are fighting again, but this time it's with themselves. And this is called the War of the Roses. Now, interestingly, I'm not going to go into the full story of the War of the Roses. It has to do with the descendant of a fourth son taking the throne instead of the descendant of a second. And now they're both years and years later claiming my family line is the direct descendant to the throne. No, 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 no. My family line is the direct descendant to the throne. And anyway, it, it ended up becoming a fight between two families. It was the Lancaster family and the York family. And the, the Lancaster emblem was the the red rose and the York emblem was the white rose. So that's why it's called the War of the Roses because it was the war between the white roses and the red roses. Not really, just the emblem that their families represented, you know. But um, so they go to war, and they, I mean, this goes on and on and on. One side's ahead, then the other, and one takes the throne, then another. Finally, 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 the War of the Roses lasts from 1455 to 1485, so total of 30 years. And when it is over... The Tudors, the Tudors who are from the Lancaster side, they win. It's Henry VII, and Henry VII does a very wise thing. He marries Elizabeth of York, who is from the opposing side, and he creates a new emblem that is a combination of a red rose and a white rose. Very, very smart. And so he is set to reunite England, and he does. And he loves the Lord, and he has a beautiful wife. And they have a large, large family, and things are moving. Now, about this time, his son, Henry VIII, takes the throne after him. Now, Henry VIII was not in line for the throne. He had an older brother, and his older brother was engaged to this Spanish princess. And Henry VIII had this huge younger brother crush on her. And he just thought she was awesome and beautiful, and he wished that she could be his wife. Well, his brother dies. So now Henry is heir to the throne. So Henry, even though this princess is older than him, he asks to be engaged to her, and he's engaged to her, and he's happily married to her for about 20 years, probably not the last few of the 20 years, but he just really loves her. She's very beautiful. She's very, very devout, very religious. Henry's very religious. They're strong Roman Catholics. And about that time, Henry becomes very upset that he doesn't have an heir to the throne. She has one baby girl that lives, and her name is Mary, but all the other babies died. And so he wants to divorce her. He becomes infatuated. He has a crush on this woman who's in the court. Her name is Anne Boleyn, and he wants to marry her in the hopes that she will give him a son. So after 20 years of marriage, he goes to the Pope, and he says, Hey, 
I was wondering, what do you think about me, you annulling my marriage? And the Pope, okay, now keep in mind, like I said, we're not talking about the Spanish right now, but just so you know what the Spanish are up to, they're over in the New World exploring and bringing back gobs and gobs of gold, and they're donating a lot of that gold to the Roman Catholic Church. And so, indefinitely, if the Pope is a good man, he's going to say, look, you don't have grounds for divorce. But if he's a bad man, he's going to say, look... I'm going to side with the Spanish queen here. She's a Spanish princess. Now she's the English queen, but she's a Spanish princess. And her family over in Spain, who's giving me all this money, they're not going to be so happy if I side with you. Now, I don't know which the Pope was, but he did make a godly decision to say no to Henry because Henry didn't have grounds for divorce. I mean, grounds for an annulment. And so what happened was Henry decided... I am not going to put up with this. And he literally separated every single church in this country of England from Rome. So now all of the churches are no longer Roman Catholic. They are Anglican. And he is makes himself <laughs> the head of the church in England. Now what is so humorous about this is that when I talk about the Reformation next, Henry had been dead set against the Reformation. He had actually written books against the Reformation and defending the Catholic Church. But when the Catholic Church told him no, he told the Catholic Church, I'm out of here. So I'm sorry to tell you all that because I think that's a horrible way that the Anglican Church started. But later things get better. But you know, it was a horrible way the whole thing started. So that is Henry VIII. Now, Henry VIII made his way through six wives. He killed two. He divorced two. And one died in childbirth and one outlived him. So he actually ended up with a son after all that. His son was very sickly, though. So now at the end of his life, Henry is married to this beautiful woman named Catherine who loves the Lord and she's a devout Protestant and she has, so she brings the children together and tries to be a mother to him. So now at the end of his life, he's got two daughters, the Roman Catholic Mary, who's the daughter of the princess Catherine, the queen Catherine. He has Elizabeth who is the daughter of Anne Boleyn. And then he has Edward the sixth who will take his place at the end of his life. He is heavily influenced by his Protestant wife and he begins to bring all of these advisors and noblemen and godly Protestants into his court. And they will have a huge influence on his son as his son rules. And his son takes the throne at a very young age. His son, Edward VI, loved the Lord. They call him the British Josiah. He was just a really good king. Unfortunately, he did not live long. He got very sick. And when he knew he was going to die, he did not think that either of his older sisters was fit to rule. And so he gave the queen to Lady Jane Grey. Lady Jane Grey was a descendant of Henry VII. And she was a devout Christian. She was only on the throne for nine days because Mary, the oldest daughter, raised up an army, had Lady Jane Grey imprisoned and then executed, and, and Mary took the throne. By now, under King Henry VIII and under Edward VI, 
England had become decidedly Protestant. But now Mary came in, and that was all gone. She returned England to the Roman Catholic Church and put to death a lot of the Protestant leaders. So many, many Protestants fled to Switzerland. And over in Switzerland, they translated the Bible into English. That's where you get the Geneva Bible. One of the scholars who fled had been Lady Jane Grace Tudor, John Fox, and he was the one who wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs. So you have a lot going on there, like a lot of people leaving England at that time, fleeing for their life. Now, after Mary dies, then you have Queen Elizabeth. And Queen Elizabeth wasn't necessarily a devoted Christian. I'm not saying she wasn't a Christian. She allowed a lot to go on. So she allowed a lot of religious freedom for Protestants and Catholics, but she did return the nation to the Anglican Church. So after Queen Elizabeth, the nation was never Roman Catholic again, although there were many attempts to bring it that way. So I wanted you to have a picture of that going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and then finally staying Protestant. Now, what do I mean when I say staying Protestant? Because what on earth am I talking about? Because until the Reformation in 1517, Europe was one church, the Roman Catholic Church. And, of course, now Eastern Europe, over with the Byzantine Empire, there had been a split years before between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. But in all of Western Europe, which included France and Germany and the Scandinavian countries and Britain and Spain and Portugal, all of that was decidedly Roman Catholic. And so what happened, I was telling you the Renaissance brought a lot of corruption into the Roman Catholic Church. And what happened is... There were, there were many people crying out against it who stayed inside the Roman Catholic Church. There was a monk in Florence called Savonarola, and he preached the gospel and told people to repent. And he actually did bring revival for a short time in Florence, but the Pope had him put to death. So Martin Luther is a monk. He's tired of the practices that are going on. And so there's this door called the Wittenberg Door, and you can kind of post up things you want to discuss, talk about how you feel about things. So he posted 95 thesis, or you know what a thesis statement is, right? You write thesis statements for your essays, and he posted these 95 thesis statements and basically was saying, this is what I think about the corruption in the Roman Catholic Church. We need to repent. The just shall live by faith. And so there is a huge uproar. And eventually, there is all kinds of conflict. And eventually, in Germany, the Lutheran Church is birthed. And in other countries, in Sweden, the Lutheran Church is birthed. But the Huguenot Church in France, and then France never turns from being Roman Catholic. So they have to flee. And you've got Moravians also in Germany. You've got the the Protestants in Switzerland. So you have a lot of Northern Europe turning back to the gospel and in the process of turning back to the gospel, turning to the Protestant faith. 
Now, the Catholic Church is going to reform in a century or so. But in the meantime, they're just kind of in a state of struggle. They're not so much, again, not the the people who are pastoring the people, but the leaders and the higher-ups. There's a lot of corruption up there. And God is eventually going to take care of that. But now the split is done. And so you have got new Protestant denominations. One of the things that the Reformation did is it brought the Bible into the hands of the people. And, of course, we have Johann Gutenberg in the late 1400s invents the printing press. So all these ideas from the Renaissance and the Reformation are spreading through Europe. Marco Polo's books spreading through Europe. Ideas that we can reach China by sailing west spreading through Europe. All these things are spreading through Europe. And among those things are Bibles, mostly Bibles, and people are reading the Bible, and they're reading things like, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as if working for the Lord. And what's birthed out of that? The Puritan work ethic. And so people are beginning to work hard. Nobles who just kind of sat around and did nothing, they're saying, oh, wait, I want my life to count. I want to work hard. I want to be productive. I want to honor the Lord. And so eventually from the Reformation, you are going to have the Industrial Revolution. Very, very interesting how so many things tie in. But what you have in as a result of the Reformation is you have French Huguenots. These are the French Protestants who are going to be persecuted, and they're going to have to get out of France. Now, in the Netherlands, because of all this marriage, the Netherlands is under Spain, and Spain is decidedly Roman Catholic. So there's a lot of Protestants in the Netherlands in fact, the Netherlands was mostly Protestant, and the, the Spanish are saying, no, you will be Roman Catholic. And, of course, the Inquisition that's going on down in Spain is spreading up to the Netherlands. So now you have the Netherlands, the Dutch Protestants, they're going to come to the New World, and they're going to go to New York, and they're escaping the Inquisition. Then you have the English separatists, that you had the Puritans, and you had the separatists, and we'll talk more about that later, about the the conflict in the Anglican Church of the people. But the separatists were just, they're like, this is what the Bible says, and we're going to obey it. And those, of course, are the pilgrims. So you've got the English Puritans, the English separatists, and then you have the German Moravians. And the Germans, Moravians, were actually persecuted by the Lutherans, believe it or not, because the Lutherans felt, oh, you've gone too far. So we've got a lot of different denominations splitting off people who are just saying, look, I want to obey the Bible and serve the Lord. And, of course, you know what it's like today. People just don't agree on everything. And so that's what you're starting to have there. But what is the bottom line of all this that's going on? In America, before the 13 colonies are going to be established, there is a nation that is going to rule over the 13 colonies that will eventually become the first 13 United States. And this nation has a heritage of freedom, has a heritage of trial by jury, the right to face your accusers, protection of private property, habeas corpus. So we have this great heritage from this nation that is going to oversee these 13 colonies. We also have the Reformation that is going to be established in this nation and established in the hearts of many, many of the very first 
people who come here, because we didn't just have English people settling those 13 colonies, even though they were under British rule. We have the Germans, we have the Dutch, we have different people. Many of them are going to have been impacted by the Reformation, and they are fleeing for their lives. So I just want to lay that foundation for you. Before America was ever birthed, there was this seed of freedom and liberty, and knowing God gave mankind freedoms and rights that the government is to protect and not to usurp. So anyway, that is why it's so important to understand our British heritage. And I hope that this has given you maybe a little bit different view of American history. And I hope you have enjoyed it. The biggest lesson to learn from all of this is this, that the British common law went back to the word of God. And you, dear friends, I encourage you, no matter what troubles you face, if you're fleeing for your life, if you are having things taken away from you wrongfully, go back to the word of God and stand on the promises of God. Because God's word is true. God's ways work. And God's promises are all yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So as we look at history, there's always a lesson to be learned in our lives. God bless you and have a wonderful night. Thank you for listening to Finish Well Radio with Meredith Curtis and the Finish Well team. Please listen in every first Monday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Time here at the Ultimate Radio Network.